Hi there, I'm Robin Anir and this is Nothing on TV, a podcast in which I ransack Trove Newspapers, the National Library of Australia's fabulous digital repository of historical newsprint, to bring you stories from a time when there was literally nothing on TV. Now, in the process of writing my upcoming book, that's Nothing New, History of Second Hand, I was scouting on Trove for some lowdown on jumble sales when I came across this. It's from page four of the Melbourne Herald on Monday, December 18th, 1893. Headline, Lost Property, a Railway Jumble Sale. One of the usual periodical sales of lost property and unclaimed goods in the railways department was held this morning. The homogenous smell which has always characterised these gatherings arose and floated as of old through the corner of the shed where the sale is held. Now, 1893, we're talking about depression times, and the Herald reporter, noting that fewer goods than usual were up for sale, supposed that the hardness of the times must have left its impression on the absent-minded people who have been in the habit of leaving parcels behind them in trains. In fact, the times seem to act as a tonic to the memory. Now, regular listeners to Nothing on TV may recall way back in our second episode how one of those sideshow-stopping petrified men, the four-metre-tall Irish giant, ended up stubbing toes in the lost property office of one of the big London railway stations. I'll put a link at my show page to a marvellous illustrated essay from the Strand magazine in 1895, all about the lost property offices of London. But our focus here is on the lost property sale in Australia. We'd had railways since the 1850s, but the first mention I find of railway lost property sales dates to 1871, both in Sydney and Melbourne. There'd always been regular sales of unclaimed property. Usually that meant commercial goods sent by rail, and before that by ship, which hadn't been collected or had their freight costs paid. But sales of lost property... I guess this signalled something about the growing proliferation of cheap, even disposable, consumer goods. There seems to have come a point, around 1870, where for many people it became not worth the trouble of chasing up their lost stuff. Easier just to replace it, I guess. So, courtesy of Trove newspapers, I found lost property sales in every capital city. Over the decades, from the 1870s through the 1940s, the sales varied in frequency from monthly to quarterly to just once a year. In Melbourne, around the turn of the 20th century, between 15 and 18,000 items came into the lost property store at Spencer Street Station every year. At the start of each month, items that had gone unclaimed at any country, city or suburban station for more than 14 days were sent down to Spencer Street. These wouldn't all be lost things, or I suppose found ones, but there were also luggage and other bulky items that had been lodged at cloakrooms or sent as freight and never collected. In 1908, the officer in charge of the lost property store told the Argus that about half the articles lost are eventually claimed by their owners, the half which is not recovered, consisting to some extent of articles which the owners possibly do not wish to see again, and these were the goods sent to lost property sales. They were sold by auction, and any owner who spotted their missing property at the sale was entitled to claim it right up to the fall of the hammer. The Brisbane Courier, in 1885, carried this ad. By order of the Commissioner for Railways, unreserved sale of lost property, comprising clothing, 
books, boots, umbrellas, walking sticks, cases of milk, whiskey, marmalade and sardines. Those cases of were most likely unclaimed freight. You'd reckon cases of milk would be a bit iffy in terms of their shelf life, or was powdered milk already a thing? There'd be hundreds of lots up for auction. 604 lots were listed in a catalogue of a Victorian Railways lost property sale in 1891, comprising, said the Argus, such a mixture surely as was never offered at one auction in the world before. Here's just a flavour of the kind of lost and unclaimed stuff regularly offered for sale by the Victorian Railways during the 1880s and 90s. There were sewing machines, bedsteads and mattresses, pillows, blankets, tinware, toys, ladies and men's hats, saddlery, fishing rods, tackle, etc., musical instruments, opera and field glasses, guns and ammunition. There was cutlery, brushware, watches and jewellery, perambulators, medicines, milk cans, deck chairs, axes and saws, a mangle, ironmongery, surgical instruments, a typewriter, potato diggers, masonic aprons, pedestal vases, bicycles, billiard balls, furs and feather boas. There was underclothing, mackintoshes, cigars, gamblers' materials, as well as the usual miscellaneous assortment of articles. I do love a good list, don't you? What do you reckon were the things most commonly lost? Umbrellas. Like the pledges of politicians, said the Melbourne Argus in 1908, umbrellas are made to be forgotten. The rarest of created things is the man who always remembers his umbrella, and the train is the easiest place to forget it. Or, as the Adelaide News put it, railway carriages are the natural habitat of the umbrella. At any railway's lost property auction, there'd be hundreds, even a thousand or more umbrellas for sale. They'd be done up in bundles of a dozen, among which there may be one really good umbrella and 11 really bad ones. At a sale in Brisbane in 1906, every member of the Umbrella family was represented, from the baby parasol to the full-grown brollies and gamps. You often read of ginghams, too. Yet another name that umbrellas went by. At an Adelaide lost property sale in 1925, every nook and cranny bulged with umbrellas, both silk and cotton, ivory, bone and wooden-handled, with occasionally a gaily-striped Japanese creation, once the pride of some heedless bathing beauty. Silver-mounted ladies' umbrellas at a Sydney sale in 1906 fetched an average five shillings a bundle, while gents assorted went for twice that. A report in the Sydney Evening News of a sale some years later would run under the headline Battle of the Brollies, Anger of Umbrella Monopolist. I'd love to be able to give you the details, but the digitised page on Trove is illegible, except for that tantalising headline. Running second to umbrellas in terms of numbers were walking sticks. They too would be sold by the dozen. And at one Sydney sale, these were originally held at Redfern, then at Darling Harbour Goods Yard, at one Sydney sale, a bundle with some curiosities in the walking stick line caused a spurt in prices. A dealer secured the lot and after having paid examined his purchase. He drew out a long white stick that might have been taken for ivory. That's xylanite, exclaimed a connoisseur, at which a ripple of alarm passed through the crowd, some of whom thought he'd said dynamite. Now, xylanite, with an X, that was a kind of protoplastic. At a Perth sale of items left behind on trains and trams 
1923, walking sticks were sold for the price of tram tickets. Twelve years later, it would be noted as a sign of the times that only one walking stick figured in the offerings at a lost property sale in Brisbane. Now, after walking sticks, hats came next in number and were priced accordingly. At one Sydney lost property sale, three dozen ladies' hats, feathers, ribbons and flowers included, went for sixpence, with half a hundred men's felt hats tied on a string sold for ninepence. What else was for sale? Well, more like what wasn't. The papers loved to dwell on the unique finds that turned up. In the early years, bicycles were a novelty. Once there was a unicycle, another time a trick cycle. I guess travelling showmen used the trains. They even attended the sales, I think. Here's a report from Sydney's Daily Telegraph of a sale at Darling Harbour in 1910. Hello, hello, said the auctioneer. Here's a bicycle. It certainly was a bicycle in the sense it had two wheels. It also had a pedal and several spokes. Moreover, the frame was strengthened by a thick forked stick lashed to the handlebars with stout wire. Unless the tyres might get away, they were tied with string and stuffed with rags, leaves and bark. For this machine, and here the reporter was surely speculating, for this machine had carried the shearer far into the back country. He had ridden it back to the railway station and there, catching a train. But this was a sale of lost property, so how could it be said that he had abandoned it? The bidding was not keen. Three shillings started the bike, five shillings ended it. The buyer looked like a vaudeville trick cyclist. Among other curiosities, there were hoopla rings, bagpipes, an Indian motorcycle with a sidecar, go-karts, jockey silks, There was a bow and arrow, there were emu eggs, a collection of Aboriginal weapons, eight gallons of vermin extinguisher, a lawnmower, a doll's tea set, a meat safe, a statuette of Baden-Powell, a men's dinner suit, the trousers lined with pink satin, and a parcel containing six pairs of ladies' jazz garters. This was 1925. From Adelaide, we hear that Some people evidently found the train a good means of getting rid of the efforts of amateur artists without wounding the feelings of the donors. Two dozen frames and pictures of the type that make artistic relatives the curse of Christmas were sold for just a few shillings. A surprising number of false teeth, around 50 sets a year, were left on Victorian trains and in station bathrooms. Occasionally, said one report, some are found on the tracks. Even more surprising, at least to me, was that they were eagerly snapped up at the sales. Also making an appearance was the odd artificial leg. One was included in an auction lot at a Brisbane sale in 1932. It was bundled together with an iron, a toaster and a bookmaker's bag. Come on, don't be afraid of an artificial leg, cried the auctioneer. I hope you never need it. Buy it as an heirloom, as a standby. The lot sold for five shillings. The weird incongruity of some of these lots never failed to raise a laugh at the auctions, as I suspect it was meant to. At one Sydney sale, lot number one comprised a woman's hat, a skein of multicoloured knitting wool with needles, a radio valve, a table knife, two sheets of music, a typewriter ribbon and a rabbit skin. Lot five was a string of rosary beads, a packet of hairpins and a tea cosy. Another lot included dental instruments, a baby bottle teat, two doorknobs and a pair of slippers. 
But, and this was a, a different sale as reported by the Brisbane Telegraph, Lot 25 touched the high watermark in incongruity. A bulky People's Home Library, a dignified and informative tome for the masses, was bracketed with 15 packets of Clement's cornflour. Side by side, with a potential blancmange, the very pages of the volume curled with rage. A sailor bought 16 old hairbrushes for two and six, Another bid of two shillings secured 23 used tobacco pipes with all the microbes thrown in, as the auctioneer generously insinuated. This was the same Brisbane sale in 1908 at which a delicate-looking young fellow made a successful dash for the ownership of two packets of herbal tea and a tin of condensed milk. But the undisputed highlight of that day's catalogue was a pair of Buffalo Bill skin trousers which, at the top bid of nine shillings, became the lawful property of a lady who was showered with volleys of advice as to when and where her better half should wear them. At any sale, there were always a few lots that'd go begging. Among those which failed to arouse any really fervid excitement at a Perth sale in 1934 were the bags of gloves, in brackets, odd. A man rash enough to buy gloves, odd, said the West Australian, deserves all that is coming to him. In the early days of the railway lost property sales, it'd be mainly second-hand dealers who'd turn up to bid, with just a sprinkling of casuals looking for bargains, a further sprinkling of idlers, and just one or two pickpockets who'd drift about in search of victims. But word got round, and the newspapers helped with that, so that pretty soon bargain hunters and idlers far outnumbered the dealers a fact that the Argus attributed to two of the most powerful impulses known to the human race, curiosity and the desire for a bargain. These sales are possessed of an extraordinary amount of interest, ran a report in the Melbourne Herald in 1893, for the anticipation of a bargain will always draw a crowd. The occasion of that report was a lost property sale attended by an estimated two to three thousand people. More usually, crowd numbers would run to the low hundreds. The main draw, right from the start, both to dealers and the general public, were the luggage and bags listed in the catalogue as having contents unknown. Now, this was catnip, not just to bargain hunters, but to anyone with a gambling streak. One of the earliest newspaper accounts I found from 1871 marvelled at how many people there are who will buy a pig in a poke notwithstanding the old adage against that practice. Portmanteaus, swags and small black bags generally cause the most spirited scrambling, said the Herald in 1893. It is a speculation, and speculation is contagious. Thirty years later, a Perth newspaper, The Call, would report, the annual state lottery was held this week. Of course, they don't call it a lottery. It is advertised as a sale of lost property, held under the arches of the Perth Railway Station with some 300 people wedged into a room that would be crowded with half that number. The bulk of the spectators are there for a gamble. It's better than tats, far more exciting than the trots or the gallops, and as a gamble it is the most attractive ever offered to the public, for there are absolutely no blanks. You always get something for your money. What that something is depends largely on chance. Surprise packets, lucky bags, 
suitcases full of mystery, Pandora's boxes, as alluring as an untold secret. Would-be buyers would closely observe the auctioneer's assistant as he handled each bag or trunk, contents unknown. They'd be trying to gauge how heavy it was. But appearances could be deceptive. A grand-looking trunk covered in shipping labels from all round the world might be full of old rags or half-empty tins of paint. As early as 1892, I found accounts of lucky finds among the contents unknown, stories that would still be doing the rounds 50 years later. At the half-yearly sale at Newcastle of lost property from the Northern Line, Mr George Croker bid a few shillings for a portmanteau and its contents, which proved to be valuable clothing, title deeds for a considerable amount of property at Wilberforce, and a bag containing 16 pounds in notes. At a Sydney sale, a Mrs O'Toole of Paddington paid 11 shillings for a kerosene box full of something and found it contained an entire trousseau and a valuable brooch. A man paid 11 shillings for a locked suitcase at the same sale and found inside a new set of underclothing, a camera and a watch. In Adelaide, a weighty suitcase created some interest. It was sold for 14 shillings. What it contained was not revealed. There were string bags bulging with someone's market shopping and lunch baskets, as were carried by school kids and office workers, with old lunches still inside. And round the turn of the century, there were countless dress baskets, which I gather were what women used as an overnight bag. You hardly ever come across a carpet bag now, says the officer in charge of the lost property store at Spencer Street, talking to an Argus reporter. He's been there for years and has seen the garish carpet bag, which is hard to lose, superseded by the characterless dress basket, which is not. One is as like another as can possibly be, and the shiny cane surface defies the adhesive powers of the strongest glue. But among the most hotly contested items at any lost property sale were swags, around which a good deal of mythology seems to have been spun. And there were plenty of swags to bid on, 64 at one Melbourne sale in 1891. An Argus reporter in the crowd overheard, or else invented, this exchange. I bought a frowsy looking swag here once, says an old man. I give two bob for it and inside was, oh, we all know about what's inside swags, interrupts a companion. Well, you never bought one with a diamond ring in it anyway and letters from the aristocracy. I sent the lot to Yorkshire to the address on the letter and and they sent you a hundred pounds, eh? The old man grinned. No, they sent me a letter of thanks and a postal order for five shilling. Next diamond ring I get, I keep. And he drifts away in the crowd. A few years later, it sounds like the same reporter, observed that one old man, a farmer, was busily buying swags nearly every one that was put up he bid for, and he confided to me that he always bought them because once I found a five-pound note sewn up inside a rug. Mostly, however, there's just a pound or two of tea and sugar, a bit of tobacco and a few needles stuck into a cork. With all this luggage, whether humble or grand, you have to wonder what became of the original owners. Why hadn't they come to claim it? An Argus reporter wondered the same thing in 1891 about those 64 swags. The bushman does not lightly lose the run of his swag. Usually it contains the whole estate of its owner, 
Lacking it in the bush, he's like a snail without its shell. How then the carelessness, the neglect, the utter recklessness which leaves these behind? Is it not rather probable that this accumulation of the sole personal effects of so many men indicates mystery? Tragedy, maybe? In a similar vein, a Sydney lost property official mused to a reporter that sometimes you can see that a trunk contains everything a woman owns. And what becomes of a woman without her property, nobody knows. If these things could speak, no doubt some of them could tell some strange stories. Journalists love to mysteriosify about the past lives of stuff that turned up at lost property sales. As one looks at articles of every description stacked together, this was in the lost property store at Darling Harbour in uh, 1898, one wonders what a fund of matter for the novelist they might provide were their history known. And there's this. Who lost it? Unsolved railway mysteries. This was the headline of an item in the Brisbane Daily Telegraph in 1924, and it goes on. Who can one blame for the discovery on a train of a box of ladies' untrimmed hats? Was it a message boy who became too fascinated in the thrilling adventures of Burley Bill, the baboon hunter? Or did the label on the box become defaced on its journey to some distant town? You can see the influence of the talkies more than of Sherlock Holmes in this report from the same paper in 1933. Amongst the articles lately left in railway carriages was an 18-carat five-stone engagement ring, which, curiously enough, was found with four crepe-de-chine men's shirts. The shirts were strewn about the floor of a compartment, and in the corner lay the ring. Speculating as to what might have led to such a curious scene, the journalist concluded it was probably a minor comedy drama. By contrast... A sinister note was struck by one lot at a lost property sale, described as containing surgical instruments, a packet of blackleg aggression, this was a cattle vaccine, a hank of rope, a box of bullets and a tin of stock drench. Indeed, it was well known by the police as well as by the newspaper reading public that lost property officers had many times been used for the purpose of hiding things. Over the years, instances came to light in which criminals, murderers, even a serial killer, had disposed of incriminating evidence by lodging it at railway cloakrooms or sending it as unaccompanied luggage to some remote station, never to be claimed. Remember all those dress baskets whose shiny cane surfaces defied the adhesive powers of even the strongest glue? Well, in 1917, Henry Cairns, a porter at the Spencer Street Lost Property Store, was turning over and opening parcels in preparation for the periodical clearing sale when he made an awful discovery. Mummified baby in a dress basket was the headline in that afternoon's Herald. It seems that the basket had been sent on a train to Bansdale about seven months earlier and eventually made its way back to Spencer Street as lost property. Years before, at Euston Station in London, a live baby was found in a box Railway staff gave him the name Willie Euston and sent him to a workhouse for safekeeping. The contents of a suitcase sold at a lost property auction in 1929 were believed to hold the key to the identity of a man suffering from amnesia in a Perth hospital. A railway cloakroom ticket had been found among his belongings, only the suitcase in question 
having gone unclaimed for months, had already been auctioned. Now, under the punning headline Lost Property Case, police were seeking the man who'd made the winning bid for this particular suitcase full of mystery. Now, the fact that Henry Cairns Porter had been going through bags and parcels preparatory to a lost property sale makes you wonder, were the contents really unknown? In a report from Sydney in 1906, a lost property official explained that bags and trunks were thoroughly searched before being sold, mainly in an effort to trace their owners, but also for another reason. Folks coming from foreign parts sometimes bring indecent literature, pictures and postcards with them, packed away among their clothes. If anything of such a nature is discovered, it is promptly burned. (laughs) Trunks and bags would often be catalogued as having ladies' or else gents' contents. But on at least one occasion in Brisbane, A young man opens a suitcase purporting to contain gents' wear and finds it to be full of neatly folded lingerie. The rules around contents unknown would change over time. In Melbourne in the early 1920s, following a complaint from the Secondhand Dealers Association, the railway commissioners directed that the contents of bags, swags and cases were hence to be displayed prior to sale. Well, that took the fun out of it because fun was a big part of the lost property auction's appeal right from the start. That very first news item from 1871 began a miscellaneous sale of an amusing nature. A lost property sale offered a full day's entertainment for free at a time when, as you well know, there was nothing on TV. Often a journalist under a headline like Badinage and Bargains would propose that those attending lost property sales ought to be charged an admission fee or an amusement tax. At Brisbane in 1925, women in the crowd would perch on piles of crates, washing down scones and sandwiches with something hot from a thermos flask. And in Adelaide that same year, an enterprising pie merchant waited outside, and as the morning wore on, his smoking delicacies went with a swing. Often the crowd would overflow the venue and people would be leaning in through the windows or perhaps reclining on the grassy slope across the railway lines, watching the fun through the open door of the goods shed. No big city paper could resist such a made-for-newsprint human interest bonanza, and their reporters knew how to make sport of it. From the 1920s through to the 40s, lost property sales in Brisbane seemed to have drawn the biggest crowds and made for the best copy thanks in large part to the antics of the Queensland Railway's auctioneer, Mr Sid Whitred, who, as the papers said, never failed to see the funny side of things. Remember, don't be afraid of an artificial leg? That was him. And here we see him in action, at a sale in 1926. Here's something choice, said Mr Whitred, when a lady's velour overcoat was displayed. All you want is the motor to go with it and you'd be set up. I know the girl who lost that coat, called out a man at the back of the shed. Oh, you wouldn't be game to say that if your wife were here, retorted the auctioneer. Another time, with a stack of gramophone records for sale, he worked the crowd into a state of hilarity simply by listing off the titles. I've never seen a stale banana. Take your fingers out of your mouth. Hustling Hinkler and keep your skirts down, Mary Ann. That was in 1928. During World War II, when many goods, including clothes, were rationed or simply unavailable, prices at the lost property sales skyrocketed. 
Lots that used to go for shillings now went for pounds, which kind of put a damper on things. At one Brisbane sale in 1940, though, we read that an American soldier kept the crowd lively with his earnest efforts to buy a suitcase. Folks, he told the assembled crowd, I gotta have a suitcase. I gotta bring some things down from the north and I gotta have a suitcase. Finally, he bought one with ladies' contents for 43 shillings and, hoisting it on his shoulder, issued an invitation to anybody who wanted to share in the contents to follow me, folks. Well, the folks followed like children in the wake of the Pied Piper. Dumping his case with ladies' contents on the platform, the soldier opened it up and distributed shoes, stockings, slips, scanties and other articles of apparel among a crowd of excited women. And speaking of slips, around the same time, the Melbourne Argus went all Freudian on us, quoting the opinion of a well-known Melbourne psychiatrist that losing something is not an accident. It is a purposive act prompted by the fact that some unpleasant association clings around the article lost. It may be a useful or valuable article which cannot reasonably be thrown away, yet while we retain it, it insults the psyche by continually reminding us of something we wish to forget. Therefore, concluded the Argus, the periodical auction sales of lost property held by the railways tell a tale of a thousand subtle embarrassments. Of course, all those umbrellas. Twaddle. How, I wonder... Did the insulted psyche account for the animals that regularly showed up at the lost property office? Probably they were more often escaped than lost. Anyway, they didn't usually make it to the sales. Those that weren't claimed by their owners would often be adopted as mascots. Every lost property office had its dog or cat and a caged bird or two. There are accounts of snakes being discovered coiled up in baskets or blankets, and once of 36 white mice and a tame kookaburra being handed in on the same day. Unfortunately for the mice, they were placed too close together. The officer in charge of the Spencer Street Lost Property Store told an Argus reporter in 1908, We once received a live tortoise, but it got away into the station yard and we never saw it again. At which the reporter couldn't resist a dig. It does not occur to the officer that the presence of a tortoise on a railway line would not excite comment. It might easily be mistaken for a country train. (coughs) Nothing on TV is homemade in my Verlin Heights studio in Castlemaine, Victoria, Australia. It's produced by Mrs Bradley, my bristle-chinned doppelganger, literary agent and muse. Take a look at my show page, robinanear.com slash nothingontv to see highlights from newspapers I looked at in this episode, as well as pictures and further reading from past episodes. There's an email link there too, if you want to drop me a line via Mrs Bradley. You can find and download past episodes of the podcast at the show page, or else at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Why not subscribe and have new episodes drop, as if by magic, into your podcast feed? This is my last episode for 2019. Next year is already shaping up as a busy one for me, but time and inspiration permitting, nothing on TV will be back sometime in 2020. In the meantime, at my show page, you'll find links to Trove newspapers as well as to other resources that'll help you delve into Trove's marvels for yourself.
just in case, you know, there's nothing on TV. I'm Robin Anir. Talk to you next time.